0: Welcome to Making a Difference, a Junction Journalism production. I'm Curtis Baines.
1: And I'm Georgia Dunn. This episode of Making a Difference has been produced by journalism students at Deakin University on Wathaurong Country.
0: Coming up on the program, a story on how fashion is being used to make political statements.
1: And we'll hear firsthand what it's like to fall victim to an online dating scam.
0: But first, Crystal Richardson takes us to Vietnam, where she meets the people who are working to stop the scourge of human trafficking.
2: These are the sounds that greet all visitors to star kickboxing and fitness, a subterranean Muay Thai gym tucked away beneath the busy streets of Hanoi, Vietnam. The guy doing all the yelling, that's Phu a former member of Vietnam's Special Forces who once protected presidents and who now co-owns Star with his wife Gemma. The air in the gym is alive with the smell of Tiger Balm and the endless thwack of fists hitting pads. So many stories have their genesis within the walls of this gym, but the one I'm about to share is by far the most important. Phu and Gemma are part of a collective of businesses and organizations working to help the victims of human trafficking in Vietnam. He already loves being a Muay Thai trainer, but his eyes brighten when he speaks about the work he does to help these women and children.
3: I know the situation in Vietnam, so I want to help them a lot because in the past I don't have the chance. So now, I, when I have the chance, I I I I'm very proud and feel happy for help them and looking uh, looking for them to the how to either improve and how they can just themselves, make the life maybe. Try to, try to bring to a nice comeback to
2: them. In addition to helping the victims of human trafficking, Fu trains the extraction team at an organization called Blue Dragon. These are the people who cross the border into China to rescue Vietnamese women and children from their captives. To get to the heart of the story, this was where I needed to go. Of course, there's a pandemic to contend with, so I didn't get to visit Blue Dragon, but I did get to speak to Kim Miller, the organization's schools and partnerships coordinator.
3: With COVID and the the restrictions that have come in, people are more and more desperate, uh, and that includes the traffickers. And so we're seeing an upswing again of young people being trafficked into girls being trafficked into karaoke bars that are actually fronts the brothels, um, boys being trafficked onto onto fishing ships and forced to sign false documents of of servitude. On top of this, there's the ever-present issue of Vietnamese
2: women and children, usually from small villages in the north, being trafficked across the border into China.
3: There's one young girl who was living in... Living in she just moved to a new community with her mother. They'd escaped a really violent, uh, abusive relationship and escaped from the, the, the young girl's father. And they'd moved to a new village a couple of weeks before the end of the school year. And it was a neighbour across the road who said to the mum, you know what, I'm going for a job in a restaurant up near the border of China and Vietnam. Why doesn't your daughter come with me? And, you know, the mother and this young 14-year-old was so grateful for that opportunity. But this woman had actually trafficked this young girl uh, into a forced marriage in China. And when the neighbour came back to the community, she said to the mother, oh, you know... This young girl, she was so naughty. She got in trouble at the restaurant and she ran away and and we didn't see her again. And mum just knew that that wasn't true. Like, she knew her daughter and she knew that wasn't true. And so she contacted the police who spoke to Blue Dragon and we were able to find her and to rescue her and to to bring her back into her community.
2: While it's important to draw attention to this crisis, the Blue Dragon team have to be careful not to re-traumatise victims or give away information that could be used by traffickers. Both of these things could happen if victims of human trafficking would share the details of their stories directly with the media.
3: Every one of our rescues could be a movie. There is so much complexity in this situation, and especially right now. We're dealing with closed borders, uh, restrictions to travel, getting people across the border back into Vietnam and helping to repatriate them is so difficult. We had one moment last year where we knew of 29 victims of human trafficking that were stuck in China. And we just couldn't get to them to get them home. And we know that sometimes one or two days, you know, it can be the difference between life and death for these young people. And so it's a really, it is a really stressful, complicated situation. And trying to find ways that we can tell those stories that protects victims and that protects our our rescue team and that doesn't let the traffickers get onto us is also really, really important and and quite tricky at the moment.
2: This situation is undeniably tough. But what stands out is the high degree of hope shared by Kim, Phu, Gemma and the other volunteers I met during my time in Vietnam.
3: If we know who the victims are and who they're likely to be, and if we know who the perpetrators and the traffickers are likely to be, and we know why they're likely to become traffickers, then there's power in that, because we can do something about it. And it's one of the reasons that we are confident that we will be able to end the trafficking of young girls into China.
2: This is precisely the kind of work Gemma and Fu were starting to do in tandem with Blue Dragon. But unfortunately, they've been closed since May due to strict lockdowns in Hanoi. Though their part of the massive team effort involved in ending human trafficking has been on hold, they too have hope for the future.
3: It has been a challenge, but... We're just ready and waiting to get started
1: again. Would you agree with me? (laughs) Yeah. Next, Jessica Fisher takes us behind the screens to find out what it's really like being a social media influencer.
4: For me, a photo shoot will take maybe if I'm shooting for one brand, maybe like an hour or half an hour just to get the right shot. So like today, I want to shoot for 10 different brands, which is crazy.
5: This is Ellie Cohen, an Instagram influencer. She's on the train to a photo shoot destination for the day. She started influencing when the COVID pandemic hit.
1: I had taken
4: a photo in like a designer jumper and posted it for a bit of fun. And I actually tagged the brand and saw that they reposted it. And so I was like, oh, okay, wow got some recognition, this is kind of cool, and so I started taking photos.
5: Since then, Ellie has amassed over 11,000 followers on the app, but it's taken a lot of work.
4: I'm still arranging photos that I took from weeks ago, you know, like it doesn't really end until I posted it.
5: And despite her success, there is still self-doubt.
4: I'll look at my planner of my photos and I'll be like, in the moment, wow, they're such good photos. Like yesterday I took photos, I'm like, oh, it looks amazing. Today I'm like, another shit. I've got to redo it. Yeah, it's just a lot of self-criticism.
5: Many micro-influencers like Ellie use PR agencies and influencer marketing platforms to organise their brand deals.
6: We have fifty or 60,000 influencers on our platform sort of using our app and engaging with brands at any particular point in time.
5: Anthony Sverskis is the CEO of Tribe Group, an influencer marketing platform. Tribe was founded in 2015.
6: It used to be a little bit of the Wild West, so three, four, or five years ago, it really was give a product to anyone, they'll hold it up and they'll get paid for that.
5: Since then, he's witnessed and contributed to the evolution of the Instagram influencer
6: in our experience things are changing pretty rapidly when you go into sponsored content generally most brands are pretty comfortable with real and raw content they want to connect with real people who are genuine about the products that they love
5: but it takes a bit more than just being yourself
6: most influencers are really sort of strong managers of their own time and and energy and the simple fact is if you're an influencer who doesn't have those standards um, or who, who doesn't act semi-professionally, you just won't survive because there are plenty of influencers who do. And so it sort of becomes a requirement of the job effectively.
5: Elle Taylor has spent seven years as a YouTuber and Instagram influencer. She's a bit of a veteran. She's also seen how influencing has changed over the years.
4: People aren't individual like they were when they first started. It's more so about creating the perfect image, whereas when you, when I first started, it was just sharing. It wasn't putting so much thought in behind what the picture looked like, what the image looked like. It was just going with the flow.
5: And after spending so many years sharing her life, influencing began to take a toll on her mental health.
4: It was consuming all my time. I was just isolating myself from the real world.
5: Elle found that she couldn't really be herself on Instagram.
4: If you're having a bad day, you've got to pretend that you're happy when you're doing a brand deal. Post with a happy face It's so hard. It's like you're being fake, but to your followers, you won't seem like you're being fake. You have to put the smile on for the photo of the product.
5: The time it takes to curate the perfect online persona can take away from real life.
4: You isolate yourself quite a bit. You're always doing brand deals. You're always doing emails. There's lots of editing, behind-the-scenes stuff involved. It's very time-consuming.
5: Influencing can be an exciting and rewarding job, but it certainly isn't easy.
4: You don't just post a photo and that's it. There's so much work behind it and it's something that you need to be committed to and it's a job. It's just something that can be very taxing on you as a person and it can take away from your real life. So I just hope people don't put all the eggs in that basket
1: Now, Brandon Davis dives into the world of fashion to explore how clothing is being used to make political and social statements.
7: New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art held its first Met Gala in 1948. This year alone, the event pulled almost 200 million online streams across all social media platforms. And throughout history, many attendees have used this platform to deliver political and social commentary. This year is no different. Some of the most striking attempts came from New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez with her Tax the Rich dress, designed by luxury brand Brother Valleys, or Cara Delevingne's Peg the Patriarchy vest, provided by Dior. Marotti Soji George is an educator at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, Canada, and is the head curator for the Black Arts Centre in Vancouver. I'm speaking to him today to get to the bottom of how the meanings behind slogans like these can be misconstrued based on their contexts. Marotti, Kara's Peg the Patriarchy vest was criticized because the original creator of the phrase wasn't credited. The original creator being Luna Matatas, who is a queer woman of color. How does Kara wearing this garment, being a wealthy, privileged white woman, change or diminish the meaning of the phrase?
8: This goes back to positionality and rich people just rich peopleing and making political statements or what they think are political statements when they are actually just, um, what do they call it, contributing to the systems that oppress all of us, most of us. Um, Dior, the designer for that garment, actually also came under fire, I would say, two or four years ago for selling this shirt that says we should all be feminist, which is a quote by a black woman, Chimamanda. I believe that the t-shirt was going for close to $1,500, $1,500 for the t-shirt and also with the Statement that was being made, um, it was just a very bad taste.
7: The two examples you gave, well, like this one and then the We Should All Be Feminist shot, seem very similar in that they just don't really say anything. It's, it's about optics rather than actual change.
8: They are literally just using the statement as an accessory. Like, this statement itself, We Should All Be Feminist, peg the Patriarchy, they are literally using it as a design element, an aesthetic element, and as, as a way to, like, uplift a garment, which is not what statements should be.
7: So it's clear that it's not just who hears a message that's important, but also who is saying it in the first place. With that in mind, I asked Denny Francisco, creator of indigenous-owned clothing label Nali, what methods her brand uses to explore activism.
9: When you're trying to deliver a message um, through a garment, I think one of the biggest parts of that is having the power in numbers. You know, it's important for people to see that the message is getting across to people and that there's a lot of people backing it up. This type of clothing uh, just isn't accessible to anyone, really. So there's this disconnect between her and the people that she's trying to help because she already has far more influence than those people and that influence, I think, is being misdirected towards this fashion event. When I think someone in her position should be focused on uh, legislation,
7: so just in reference to that disconnect, what sort of strategies do you use during the design process if you're aiming to deliver a successful political message?
9: It comes down to backing slogans that are memorable and marketable, but also nuanced. Uh, I think the message needs to have a clear intention so that it's uh, it's not so broad that it confuses your audience. Uh, I think uh, the
7: dress is sort of like if we were to release a shirt that said, end racism. It's like, Like, yeah, of course. Yeah, like, like, (laughs) duh, of course. but, But how? What are you actually doing about it? That's what matters, because in this case, it just feels like the slogan itself is not really doing anything. When celebrities with such large platforms make attempts to spread awareness for political and social issues, though they might want to help, their privilege and also the context that they're in at that exact moment can hinder their perspective these times where it might be best for those in the limelight to consider uplifting the voices of others instead
0: our next story by ben Felosi explores what it's like living with tourette syndrome he chats with seamus evans who was diagnosed when he was 10 years old and now raises awareness of the condition
10: Tourette syndrome affects one in 100 Australian kids, leading to verbal and physical tics, which present challenges for these children to go about their day-to-day lives. With no cure, the condition is lifelong, proving difficult for children and their families to manage. Today, we're going to be discussing what it is like for people living with Tourette syndrome and how to manage the inherent challenges the condition presents, with two experts on the topic. The first is Seamus Evans, an ambassador for Tourette Syndrome Association of Australia. He has also been involved in TV and radio as a presenter and was born with Tourette's, being diagnosed when he was 10 years of age. There's a lot of misconceptions about Tourette's and what it means to have Tourette's. So can you explain a little bit about exactly
9: what Tourette's is? Tourette's syndrome is a neurological condition made up of both motor and vocal tics. Mm. (laughs) And you must have both motor and vocal tics to be classified as Tourette's syndrome. Tics are extremely common. And I think it's only 10% of people who have Tourette's have coprolalia, which is the swearing tick. And so
10: how was life growing up for you as a child and teenager uh, with Tourette's and how did
9: it affect you and what did you have to overcome? There's no cure to Tourette's. So having Tourette's growing up was very difficult because, you know, you're constantly faced with a social barrier. And when you're young... Before adolescence and even going through puberty, that's already a really difficult period. And then when you add having Tourette's, that can add a great deal of social anxiety.
10: You're a guest speaker now, stand up comic, mm. you'd be on radio, TV. And I guess they're all sort of roles that you wouldn't perceive as being necessarily well suited to someone with the sort of speech
9: and physical tics. So, how did you build up the confidence to be able to do many of these roles? I always wanted to be on television. So for a long time, I just pretended I didn't have them, right? And then when I first got, uh, my job on television, the boss pulled me aside and said, why do you keep twitching? And because I didn't, I wasn't forthright in telling them that I had Tourette's. I said, oh, I've got Tourette's. And that was after I got the job. And so they kind of panicked a little bit and we were like, oh, geez, if this is going to be a problem, like if you can't get a hold of your Tourette's, then maybe we've made the wrong employment decision. And so I was a little bit, kind of freaked out when I was faced with that position of, oh my gosh, my Tourette's is going to stop me from being on TV. I had to learn how to manage them and redirect them. And so that's when the journey started of learning how to disguise them. And so I've been doing that for about 14 years now. On a daily basis, I kind of focus on my body.
10: So what's the message you would give to young children and teenagers out there with Tourette's and for anxiety
9: or confusion or loss of confidence I meet a lot of people who have Tourette's and they've either just been diagnosed within the last year and the parents are freaking out, the kids are freaking out, you know, they get so frustrated with themselves because they're like, oh, I'm horrible, I'm different, I'm a freak. And I, I, every chance I get, I really try and express to them that it's actually okay, it's not as bad as you think, just hang in there. And my talk is on turning a floor into a superpower by sharing how I had to overcome the challenges with Tourette's turning a flaw into a superpower and being an ambassador for the Tourette's Syndrome Association in Australia. And this is what separates me from everyone else in a positive light, whereas for years it separated me from everyone else in a negative light.
10: My second guest is Emily Watson, who is a psychologist at connects Psych in Adelaide and works with children and teens with Tourette Syndrome to help them manage their tics and other issues they might face. I've seen that around 85% of patients with Tourette Syndrome experience concurrent conditions such as OCD, ADHD, anxiety, or depression. I'm sort of wondering what complications does this cause?
11: So a lot of my Tourette's clients have sort of ASD or ADHD as well, which makes a significant you know, problem as well, particularly ADHD, because the tics can be sometimes, if they're new, the child can get into trouble a lot, like it looks like purposeful behaviour, whereas it's not.
10: What type of exercise and management options are there to help children with Tourette's to better control their tics and help them with their confidence in themselves?
11: You know, for some people, some of the um, tics can be quite sort of like exhausting, like the the muscles and things like that. So physio and massage does help, but that sort of just, it just helps what the tics cause. Like it doesn't actually stop the tics or change the tics in any way. There is CBITs, which is sort of like a type of therapy, where we can try and change that specific tick from happening, but you can't really do it with all ticks. It would be used for ones, I guess, if there's you know, a threat of injuring yourself or particularly socially problematic, you'd use that to, to change that tick, but, you know, you can't do it for them all and it doesn't stop ticks happening. It just can change that specific tick. <music>
0: final story, by Carl Dolan, will help you avoid falling victim to online dating scams.
12: Love it or hate it, the only real option for finding love in a pandemic is online dating. Dating sites and apps have been this amazing opportunity for people to meet during a time where everyone's trapped inside. Video chats have become the new norm, with Bumble reporting an increase of 70% of video calls, and sites like OkCupid, during March to May 2020, having an increase of 700% in dates. And Tinder recorded its largest ever amount of swipes at 3 billion swipes in a single day in March 2020. It's insane. People are able to connect with others in this time of loneliness and are somehow, some way, despite the hardship of the pandemic, able to find love. But this is not a story about those people. This is a story about the consequences of this online dating revolution. The rise of romance scams. Australians have reported a record-breaking $37 million loss to romance scams this year, according to Scamwatch. These scams don't just target older Australians too, with half the victims under the age of 35. Cathy Sundstrom is an analyst and team member at IDcare, an Australian identity and national cyber support service. Every
4: single day, we're contacted by somebody who has been in a relationship scam. And unfortunately, it's a particularly devastating very hard
12: for the person to come to the accepted that the relationship that they've been thinking they would developing was not real. As romance scams are happening every day, to fully understand the type of person to feel victim to a romance scam, I started searching for someone who would be willing to speak with me. After posting online, private messaging a bunch of people, and being accused of being a scammer myself, I finally got a response from a Redditor named Chris. Chris is an accountant from Malaysia, living in the UAE. It's
4: good to share, to be able to share the story, so that people will be aware.
12: Chris started using Tinder last May. She quickly met Chen Q, a a Chinese hotel manager living in Hong Kong, and immediately connected with him. I asked her about the experience.
4: The first thing that he asks is to transfer to WhatsApp
12: romance scammers realize that if they stay on dating platforms like tinder or bumble they'll probably get caught so they quickly move conversations to whatsapp or telegram or another encrypted platform
4: he asked me to download a certain app the app is called
12: for reference probi global is a legitimate cryptocurrency exchange where you can buy and sell cryptocurrency but the scammer then had another request
4: he asked me to to download another platform. Yeah, it's
12: actually
4: an unregulated platform. Unregulated, unregistered, non-existent
12: platform. GenQ told Chris this platform would help them both gain millions of US dollars as it had much greater returns than every other cryptocurrency platform on the market. GenQ created a savings plan for Chris and would hound her every other day, asking her to max out her withdrawals from the bank, invest in his chosen cryptocurrency, then transfer it from Huobi Global to the fake platform. I asked Chris if she was ever suspicious while he was doing this.
4: I think at that point, I was already uh, hypnotized. (laughs) They want to uh, have plans with you. They want to have more money. They want to earn money with you. And that scammer told me that you love me. do this because this is not, because
12: not for you only, this is for the future. After May, Chris and chen Q finally had the opportunity to meet. She used her leave so that she could get days off to meet her love.
4: We have decided to meet after one. Nothing happened. He always gives excuses. And then after that one, it was already the start of my nightmare. I am, I'm already convinced 1,000% to scare me.
12: Chris tried withdrawing the cryptocurrency from the scammer's platform, but it wouldn't let her withdraw with less than 30,000 US dollars in the account. She pleaded with him to help her out. Eventually, he said he'd help her if she was willing to transfer another 300,000 Durham or 5,000 US dollars into his platform. Eventually, Chris managed to negotiate down to half of that. But the next morning, when she woke up, her account had been drained.
4: So after his zeroed out not- my he told me that I'm gonna give you one last chance. You charge $2,000. I don't think I can I don't have money anymore. I do want you to do higher exhaust than
2: everything.
8: And after that one, he disappeared.
12: I sent emails to Bumble and Tinder, who got back to me and let me know to look for the blue check mark on their Tinder profile and a blue shield on the Bumble profile to show a person was photo verified. They also said to check out their video conferencing systems so that you can see who you're speaking with. I reached out to Chen Shu, but didn't receive a comment. After the interview, Chris let me know she's been using a crypto recovery platform to try and regain some of her lost funds. Although she has also mentioned that crypto recovery is a whole other scam in itself, she's hopeful she'll be successful in getting her money back. I spoke with Kathy Sundstrom, who said some tips to avoid a romance scam. Are if a person asks you to use another platform, like WhatsApp or Telegram, or when someone lets you know they won't be able to meet with you. Maybe they're in the military, or they're working overseas. Or, if anyone ever asks you for money without meeting them, that's a big giveaway. The main thing, though?
4: Just be, you know, be super vigilant, particularly a lot of people have found love online. And there's a lot of good on that platform. But be very careful when you're engaging
1: with somebody you haven't met. And that story finishes our program. For more of the best stories in student journalism around Australia, go to our website, junctionjournalism.com.
0: And don't forget there's a new episode of Making a Difference Every Month. You can subscribe on your favourite podcast app. This has been Curtis Baines and Georgia Dunn.